Father God, we are so thankful that you have a people, that you provided us a place so that we can come and worship the person, you, Jesus Christ. Lord, don't let us wander for the remaining of our time here together. You have us, Lord. You have our hearts. We ask you, Lord, to change us, to move us so that we can embrace you and that we can use the power that you have available to have a cleansed heart, a purified mind, a clear vision. And we thank you for it. And we ask nothing less in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I will start with the premise that we all know that there's a problem and we are looking continually for the answer. In our hearts, when we get down deep and when the noise stops, when the TV's off and the radio and the iPods and the noise and the work and everything is set aside and the kids and everything else, we can sense that things are not always as they should be. And we talk at length through politics and everything else that things are as they could be if we did this or this. We're not going to focus as much on that, but we're going to say that we are looking for the answer or the way, if you will. Today we will begin a three-part series dedicated to the season of Easter, giving the answer that Jesus Christ is the way the truth and a life. The three-part series will only happen in seven days. Uh, this Sunday, this coming Friday, Good Friday, 7 o'clock, everybody come. We will talk about Jesus as the truth. And next Sunday, by God's grace, we will have Jesus as the life. It is our goal that after these three discussions, that we are able to look at the historical person of Jesus Christ and make a decision. Is he the answer for all man's problems? In particular, is he the answer for me? Our goal by God's grace is to be clear, to give context, to discuss who Jesus is in such a way that each and every one of us will have the privilege, emboldened by the power of the Holy Spirit, to decide. Who is this Jesus? We will begin with that for today. Our discussion for today will focus on Jesus being the way. Two words, but they have a powerful context, and we'll take a look and say that they have eternal meaning for you and us. We will review three aspects of Jesus today. The promise of Jesus, the proof of Jesus, and then the person of Jesus. It has come out that way for me in my notes and in my studies, and I trust the Holy Spirit that it will come out in an understandable way for you. The promise, the proof, and the person. The promise is our theme verse found in John 14.6. If you're paying attention and you know the Gospels, John 14.6 says this. I am the way. This is Jesus speaking 
to Thomas. We've got to love Thomas because Thomas is a guy that asks the questions that we all wish would be asking. Jesus, we don't know what's going on. Yes, you do. No, I really don't. Okay, Thomas, here we go. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know how sometimes they say we, and this happens with me, we use a paragraph when a sentence would do. Jesus was a master of sentences. Thomas, I am the way and the life and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty clear. If you're trying to wonder what Jesus was saying, he was very, very clear. Sometimes we speak so that we can gain both sides. You know, I kind of like the left side and I kind of like the right side. I'm going to say a little bit and I'm going to say a lot and I'm moving around. And both the left side and the, if I do it well, the left side and the right side will say, well, I agree. Jesus didn't do that. Let me be very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father God except through Although that is clear, I'd like to make a few comments on that. Because when we, we understand those phrases, that is, a, that is a verse in Scripture that we might not have known. It's in John 14. But we would have thought, oh, yeah, I recognize that. That's from the Bible. Might have thought there were two separate verses or whatever, but we'd recognize it. But what is Jesus actually saying there? Let's take a look at it in postmodern world, in a world of pluralism. What is he actually saying? Because it is a construct against what the world is saying. The world is saying to us, make no mistake about it, there are entire religions formed, all the religions will basically come to a point and tell us this, because they're trying to create a worldview. Everyone will agree there's a problem. It's not as it should be, and it's not as it could be. And the answer is, you just got to do better. It's your fault. You are the problem. I am the problem. If you could get your act together everything would be fine. You could attain paradise if you can attain perfection or close to perfection. Maybe there's an eternal scale. Maybe if you do enough good versus bad, but we can't actually give you the scale. And the entire answer is there is a way. The world is pointing to a way. The leaders of the religions or the founders of the religions, if you watch them, they are pointing to a way. They are pointing to a path. And they're saying there is a way, and that way is through your good works. If you will, cheerleaders on the road. But Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He is saying, I am the way. I. I'm not pointing to a way, I am the way. So right off the, right off the bat, we have a unique differentiation between every worldview and the worldview that Christ offers. Agree or disagree will be up to us, but let's make no mistake about it and say that they are in sync. They are polar opposites, they are mutually exclusive. We, if we're being intellectually honest, will have to make a decision. Christ left it no other way. Feel free to disagree, but I am very clear in what I am saying. 
I am the way. If you want it in a tagline, the difference is the world points to a recipe. Christ points to a person, himself. Isn't it funny how when we leave here, we kind of look for the recipe again? How could I do this? What do you know? The seven secrets, there's probably a hundred books called the seven secrets of something. There's even recipes to how to get more knowledge about Christ. Because we are people of recipes, we're people of pointing paths, we're people of we want to do. It is hard for us to understand the simplicity and the truth that Jesus is saying. Promise of a person. Why did Jesus say this? How could he affirm this? He said this in full knowledge that he is God. We have to come to that knowledge. But Jesus didn't say that. I, I'm pretty sure I got this. I'm feeling pretty good about this. Get behind me. I'd say there's an 85% chance we're going to make it. I came from heaven. I built all this. I am God. I am the way. I'll give you our conclusion now. Because maybe I'll forget it by the end. The conclusion now is that there is God and there is man. And there is a chasm. We are separated by our sin. We have alienated ourselves from our creator. How can you get a path? How can you get a way between man and God? Would it not make sense that it only could happen with one who is man and who is God? As he stretches the bridge, he is fully man and he is fully God. Creating the only way. In the only God-man. Being that for this very reason. To build the bridge. To build the way. Which is himself. Romans chapter 3 verse 20. We're going to write down a few. If you're taking notes, I think that it's healthy. If not, you have a wonderful memory. Romans 3.20. For by works, no human being will ever be justified. Jesus is saying that what everybody else is offering you, that you can do it, that you can get your works, that you can look just in front of the eyes of a holy, righteous God, baloney. I am God, and I'm telling you, he said it, Paul's quoting it in Romans, for by your works, no one will be justified. And the beauty, Paul leaves it, he doesn't leave us in that. He leaves us with Romans 3.24. All are justified then how? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that exists in Christ Jesus. Don't you love the clarity of scripture? So how are we justified? If we are not justified by our works, we are justified by this gift through the redemption that exists in Christ Jesus. And because it's a personal pet peeve of mine, and I think it's uh, inappropriate that it stands uncorrected, you get this phrasing in the world. The worldviews like to say, well, Christianity, the followers of Christ, the followers of the way, are an exclusive group. If you don't agree with them, 
you can't go to heaven. The funny thing is, take a look at every other religion. They're very, very exclusive. You have to do this, 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 and this, or you're all excluded. And they, by definition, would say the majority are excluded. And then there's some that just have a very, very unique uh, thinking, and we can talk about those offline. But look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. I love these. Christ speaking, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Contrary to being exclusive, it is completely inclusive. Do you know people that are heavy, that are burdened, that know that all this effort is so difficult? Jesus says, if you fall into this group, all of you, come to me, all you that labor, all you that are working, and I will give you rest. Available for every person and every time, every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care if we're tall, smart, short, American, Irish. He doesn't care. He created us all. He is the God of us all. He just has, he's an artist and he, he, he likes the diversity. God is bringing us all together. So what is the proof? If that is the promise that I am the way, the truth, and the life, it would appear that God would give us some means to evaluate that. To give some reasonable analysis. The end of our reason will end in faith. But our faith is a reasoned faith. It is not a blind faith. It is not a faith contrary to reason. It is not the suicide of thought. It is where the thought will lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. So what is the proof that God in the person of Jesus Christ has left for us? I have five areas. We will only spend time on the one because we are limited by time, but you are not limited throughout the course of the week. So these are healthy, healthy studies. I'll point you in the right direction of many wonderful books um, if you ask. The proofs that I will focus on today are fivefold. Prophecy fulfilled, and I love what Zoli read in Psalm 22. It's beautiful. You know, one of the prophecies there. Sinless life, number two. Jesus' is sinless life. The miracles that Jesus did, the resurrection of Jesus, and the fact that he changed the world. Lives, millions of lives, have been fundamentally changed, experientially changed, because of interaction with Jesus Christ. History has changed. We're going to do a little uh, heavy lifting now. All right, so everybody sit up a little straighter. Pay attention a little closer. We're going to talk about prophecy for just a minute. We're going to go through it. And uh, yes, Carla, we might hit Daniel 9 just for a moment. Born of a virgin. 
I'm going to give you the prophecies and where they are recorded. We are not going to take the time today to find the revelation. I'm going to assume for the moment that you understand the gospel story to a degree. If not, I'll give some context to it. But you can look up the revelations as they are recorded, as they are fulfilled in, in, in the Second Testament, in the New Testament. But these prophecies are recorded for us in the First Testament by many different authors over many periods of time. Zola read their own 500 years ago, if you will, by David. In Psalm 22, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? I'll take a few highlights. Let us go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The prophet Isaiah writing hundreds and hundreds of years before, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You will have a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us, God coming down. That Jesus, that God would come to this earth and one of the signs is that he would be born of a virgin. There's all kinds of theology here because we have Adam's sin and Adam's sin coming down for us. We have a father and a mother. Jesus has his father, which is God, sinless, perfect, holy, God himself, triune. His mother is human, the God-man. But we're talking about prophecy today. So Isaiah 14, 7, 14, born of a virgin, Joseph and Mary, you know the story. They're engaged. They hadn't been together. Mary's pregnant. Big deal. Going to get divorced, if you will. A whole society is kind of up in arms. This doesn't happen in early Jerusalem. Happens in 2010 America, but doesn't happen. In the cousins were gossiping. So we got an issue with Mary. Pay attention to the story as recorded in history. The prophecy fulfilled. He was to be born of a virgin. He was born to the tribe, specifically of Judah, of the 12. He's born to the tribe of Judah, born to the house of David. You can find all of these. Born in Bethlehem of Judea. Let's read that one. In Micah. A little tough to find Micah, so I'll pay attention and read it for you. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're so small, Bethlehem, you barely should even be counted. But from you shall come forth for me, the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from the ancient of days. The eternal one will come from the, from the tribe of Judah, the house of David, and the town of Bethlehem, as recorded by Micah. It's recorded that Jesus would perform many miracles. His specific humiliation and death is recorded. Let's turn to that one. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 50. You talk about, you know, when you look at the prophecies of like Nostradamus and these others, it's kind of like it, it should be warm sometime soon at times, and sometimes there's specific ones you look at them, but the prophecies in Scripture, others try and they've been wrong. But prophecies in Scripture are very, very particular, very, very precise. The town. Isaiah 50, verse 6. 
prophesying about Jesus and his humiliation, his suffering prior to his death. I gave my back to those who strike, and I gave my cheek to those who pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53 gives us an entire deeper account. Psalm 22, 16 Zoli had read it. There's much in there, but one of the points it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus on the cross, his hands and his feet were pierced along with his side. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. We just finished the series in Daniel, and we, and we stopped just short of this. You got the apocalyptic literature in the second half of Daniel. The first half is the narrative. But for today's discussion, this is germane. We can do an entire study on this. If you enjoy all the numerology, if you understand uh, some of the details of this prophecy, it's a, it's a great study. I'll give it to you briefly. But I will read two verses. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The weeks here are years. If you do the math and you end up the years, you're talking, there is a time where the king will say, there's a time that a decree will go out and says, we will rebuild Jerusalem. You can find this in Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes, 444 B.C., if you're paying attention to the math. And because they were using a 360-day year, you'll go forward, you will put yourself forward the exact math of the 62 weeks. You got the early ones, you got the later ones. You add up all the weeks here as years, you will end up in the spring of 33 A.D. to the time of the destruction of the anointed one. Our lesson for today is going to take us into the triumphal week, the passion week, the scholars can debate some of these points because we're going back years. But you have Daniel recording in Scripture and giving times and seasons. I ask you not to take my word for it. I ask you to dive into Scripture and see what Daniel was saying in chapter 9. It takes a little bit of effort, but I will assure you it is worth the effort. In a brief time today... I believe that we have shown that Jesus was prophesied very specifically. You cannot create your own virgin birth. You cannot create the town you're born in. You could say, hey, pierce my feet, pierce my hands. I've got to fulfill these prophecies if you're trying to, you know, hey, I would like to be this one. Let me, let me try to do this. Really? This manufactured or is this prophesied and come true? This is the question we need to answer. 
we will leave the prophecy alone. We talked about a sinless life. All those who knew Jesus, those, these were zealots for the law. These were individuals, and they all gave account. The Jews who wanted nothing more than righteousness and holiness. And they said, in this one, there is no guile. In this one, there is no sin. His reputation was powerful. His miracles. Jesus was able to give sight to the blind, to give feet to the lame, to give hearing to the deaf, to control the atoms, to control time and space. He was able to control the sea, whether to calm it or to walk on it. He was able to manufacture food out of nothing. Jesus had control of all of creation. And he used it as an evidence of his deity. His resurrection. Jesus is two of his miracles. He had raised others from death to life, one of them being his good friend. And then he did it himself. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the critical documentations of history. Either he swooned, either he fainted, somebody stole the body, or he resurrected. Many people who had left him, including his disciples, were swayed by not everything that came before, not the prophecies that they knew, but the fact that in the end he resurrected and they spoke to him again. And then finally, the changed lives. The changed lives of the disciples, the changed lives of the early church, the changed lives that still exist today because Jesus is still alive and well and creating personal relationships. People still know him today. So that is our proof. I encourage you to go home and either confirm it in your heart so you can give an answer to everyone that asks of you, a reason of the hope that is in you. Do it with meekness and fear, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. But be ready to do it. Why do you believe? Don't send them to the elders. Don't send them to your friend. Give an answer. Have an answer for why you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord, your Savior. To me, the evidence is objective. I believe it's absolute and certain. I read this somewhere. I'm not sure where, but it resonated with me because I think this is bringing it now. Where are we at here? Let's take a pause and put a little, I got a big frame around this in my notes. If you want it, I'll give it to you later. Jesus is the only revelation of God in human form. And he is the only authorized representative of humanity to God. That quote is what makes him the way. I am the way because I am the only revelation of God in human form and I am therefore the only authorized sinless representation of humanity to God. So when Jesus is the sacrifice, when Jesus stands before God and says, I'm bringing all these with me, 
because there was a human who was sinless, who paid the price, and who resurrected and bringing everyone with me. I am the second Adam. In the first all died, in me they all shall be made alive. And I do this because I am God. And I came to be man, to get man, to be the way and take him back to God. When he says, I am the way, that's what he means. Get on my back. We're going. I'm not pointing to a way. I know I'm being redundant there, but I am the way. And I think it's important for us. That is what makes him the way. So now let's talk about it. We've had the proof. We had the promise. We had the proof. Now the person, the person of Jesus Christ. And by way of the introduction, we're actually going to get to Luke 19 now. Luke 19 gives us a sense of who Jesus is. We understand that he's God, we understand that he's man, but this triumphal entry, the Passion Week as it's commonly referred to, the final week of Jesus' life, the culmination of his ministry, a short ministry of three years, and his relatively short life. What would Jesus be acting like? Who would this person, God himself in earth, walking amongst us, what's he like? Luke chapter 19, verses 28 on, gives us the category of the triumphal entry. It's really funny, you know, it's almost a play on words, a triumphal entry. He knows he's walking into his death and how this goes. The triumph is the triumph that comes later. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, this is Jesus, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever yet sat. There's his foreknowledge, his miraculous foreknowledge right there. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice. For all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the king. This is sovereign of all the universe. He's taking a ragtag group. He just came with some friends. He'd spent some time last supper. He's coming into his city. He knows he's coming for pain and suffering and death. He's going to grab a colt, sit on it as a king's representation, and come in. And the people that are there, it's a ragtag group of people standing on the sidelines. 
This is not like if you have the president coming in and we have the bodyguards and we have big, you know, displays and all kinds of lights. This is just those who are like, I've heard about this Jesus and some are disciples and some are wary. And you got even the naysayers saying, hey, hey, teacher, rebuke them. It's a ragtag group of people, some that are having faith, some that aren't, and that's his processional. It fits with the two character traits here, the humility and the humanity of Jesus. God himself has an attribute of humility, as hard as that is for us to grasp. We need to take a look at a couple proof texts for that. Let's turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, often cited as a great example of the Lord's humility. In many Bibles, it's even given that name at the top, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But... Instead, is another way of saying it, made himself nothing. Taking himself from deity to making himself nothing in the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. If we want to ever be puffed up, we just need to think about the difference between us and God. Would any of us change station? But it goes on. Being born in the likeness of men and... Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, not just as a human and as a revered human, but as a despised human, being obedient to the point of death and a death for one that he did nothing wrong, even death on a cross. Another example And I'd like you to take a look at this one with me. John chapter 6. I think this one's important for us as well. Two verses that I think very clearly articulate the humility of Christ. Verse 38. Christ speaking. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So pay attention. What is that saying to us, and what are it saying in Philippians? But here, what it's saying here, he came to do the will of his Father. Now this is God, part of triune God, saying, I came to do the will of my Father, and the will of my Father was to save humanity and to bring people to heaven. Humble to the point of doing the will of the Father for your and my benefit. That was his life. Wow. God's will for others' benefit, not his own. Not his own. Riding in on a donkey, the colt, really, is an example of the humility of our Lord. He was about the Father's business for the benefit of you and I. His humanity comes out in the next verses. 
Verse 41, and when he drew near and he saw the city, he comes close to Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He's also prophesying here. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Sovereign God coming in, knowing what his purpose is, knowing his will, knowing that many will come. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus was fully God, and he was fully man. He was tempted on every side. He had overcome every sin, but he has the compassion. When we have a sense of emotion, a sense of compassion, that is not human-created, that is God-created, giving us a piece of his image. Jesus feels for those that are fallen. He feels for those of us that will not accept his grace. He comes across his city, his people, Jerusalem. He is coming now to save them, and he is weeping. He is brought to tears because he knows that many will reject him. His free offer of grace to create a way for them, the humility of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. So how do we conclude? We have stated today that Jesus claimed to be the way, and he proved it through his prophecy, his life, his resurrection, and changed lives. I would encourage you to study this out and see what the Holy Spirit reveals to you. Understand it is difficult to see because it's not the way we want to think. But those who seek it shall find it. I believe that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes if you want to see. And you're like, wow. I got to tell somebody else about this. If you will, Jesus not only gave us a promise, gave us a proof, and he gave us his person, but he gave us a pattern. Pay attention with me in Galatians 5.22. You already know this verse, but I will read it for you. He gave us a pattern in his life. He, he taught us humility for a reason. He taught us to live differently. He gave us the power to do so. And he says this, the fruit of the spirit of Christ is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such there is no law he gave us a new pattern for life and he gave us a different way to live Matthew records it for us in Matthew chapter 10 verse 38 and 39 living through dying and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Friends, we cannot say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the way, but walk a different path. 
the path of Jesus, the reason he brought us into this knowledge of his humility, he says, if you accept me, my spirit will help you be like me, and that will be the evidence. You cannot, we cannot be fully him, but we can be him in his likeness. We can live a different life, and his spirit is the evidence of gentleness and goodness and peace. And here it says, if we are unable to take up his cross, we are not worthy of him. And if we claim his way, but we seek to live our life, we will lose it. If we claim his way and we're willing to lose our life, praise God Almighty, we will find it and we will have it. In his same example, I came to live for my father. I came to give my life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't have time for all of this. He says, Lord, I don't want to do this. Please make it stop. Make it go away. This is hard. It hurts. It's painful. It's scary. It's emotional. It's physical. But not my will, but yours be done. Our will will fight this. Satan will tempt us to fight it. Our friends will encourage us to take our own way. We deserve it. We have a right. It's your life. Grab a hold of it. Live it. Make the most of it. That's not true. It's God's life that he gave us to be stewards over. And if we're willing to submit our life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and follow in his path, we will lose this life. We will lose this life. And we will gain it in the end. So help me help you. Let's encourage each other to not fight for this life, but fight for the one that matters, eternity. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so thankful that this is not another pointing to a steps, a path of action that we cannot accomplish, that it is not another weight on our back that we have to carry. For, Lord, we are burdened, we are heavy laden, we are working hard, and we realize we can't make it. And we're so glad that you did. Lord, we want to thank you that you came to get us, not only when we were separated, but when we didn't want you to. And when you came, we spit on you. When you came, we crucified you. When you came, we spurned you. We want to thank you, Lord, that in spite of our sin and our selfishness, you paid the price, the heaviest price of all time. We want to thank you that you had the power to rise up in the grave. We want to thank you, Lord, that you still knocked on our heart's door and that you did not leave us alone. We want to thank you that every time we stray and we're prone to wander, you come and get us and you grab a hold of us by your amazing eternal love and you bring us back into fellowship with you. Lord, we want to thank you for the good news of the Easter story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to thank you for saving me. Lord, help each and every one of us here make a decision through the power of the pulling of your grace to live for you. Not to just claim you, but to leave this life and to live for you. We believe it's powerful. We believe it's possible through you. In whose name we pray. Amen.